This uh, picture that you're going to see up on the screen is a picture uh, of mine and Brenda's wedding vows. You like that? Uh, it's 1998, so uh, that Comic Sans was hitting hard, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's some good looking. Uh, I will admit to you um, that I had no idea what I was saying. Literally and metaphorically, uh, I didn't know what our vows were until I showed up uh, at the wedding the day before. Uh, Brenda had actually kind of chosen them, and I trusted her. Uh, I, I remember um, kind of going through the uh, run-through the night before the rehearsal, and, and I think that was the first time uh, that I actually heard them. But that's, that, to me, isn't even the, the, the biggest issue. Uh, the bigger issue was not so much that I hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at them before, it's the fact that I had really no idea what they were going to mean in the future. Um, I just knew I wanted to be married. I wanted to marry Brenda. I thought she was awesome. She was athletic, beautiful, fun, way more organized than I was. Uh, I really wanted to have sex. Uh, That's a true story. And... uh, I wanted to finally live with my best friend. I wanted to be able to go to sleep with my best friend. I wanted to wake up with my best friend. I wanted to do adventures with her, right? All of that. Now, I've been married for a little over 21 years now. You should cheer for Brenda. (laughs) Really. Um, I want to tell you what I've learned, what I found out over the last 21 years. Marriage is amazing. And marriage is amazingly hard. Uh, I tend to be, and Brenda would agree with this. She would tell you that this is true. I, I, uh, I tend to be the optimist in the family. Brenda tends to be the realist, which is a really nice way of saying pessimist. And uh, so she, she tends to remember some of the hard times that we had, whereas I tend to kind of just forget those, Okay. So when I look back on our first few years of marriage, uh, I look back and I think, like, oh, it was, it was great. Like, we didn't, like it, was, it was fun and awesome. And uh, Brendan and I were talking about this on Friday on our date. And she's like, are you kidding me? She's like, how do you not remember? And she started listing, like, boom, da boom, da boom. And she reminded me. She's like, look, maybe for you in your glass half full kind of life, all right. But she's like, it was not that way for me. When we had been uh, married for six months uh, as newlyweds, she, uh, she was so devastated um, by how much her expectations for what I was going to be like as a husband, what I was going to provide, what I was going to do, were so shattered. She felt so unfulfilled in our marriage that uh, she was at work at the hospital on a break and uh, snuck into one of the doctor's offices and called her best friend from home and just wept on the phone with her because marriage was not what she thought it was going to be, what she expected. Now, I can recall moments of disappointment, moments where expectations were not met. It didn't mean that everything was bad uh, in our marriage. It wasn't, uh, but it certainly wasn't all puppies and rainbows either. And if you're a newlywed, I guarantee you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, uh, before we jump in, to the rest of this morning, uh, I'd like to lay down some ground rules and some expectations for the next six weeks. We're going to be doing this series, Rookies, Vets, and Free Agents, talking about 
advice for newlyweds today, advice for the oldlyweds next week. Brenda and I are actually going to teach together, uh, sharing some of our stories and some of the things that we've learned. We're going to talk about uh, advice for the notlyweds, right? Those of you that are single, we're going to talk about the B word, budgets. Uh, We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about a number of things over the next six weeks. And so what this is doing, what I'm about to do right now, is I want to lay down a foundation for how we're going to engage with this over the next six weeks. First and foremost, I want to give kind of four kind of expectations. If you're married, okay, if you're married, or maybe in a relationship that's moving towards marriage, God has you here for what he wants to say to you. Listen and obey, even if it seems crazy. God also has your significant other here as well because he wants to speak to them. That's God's job, not yours. Let God do his job and you just worry about yourself, okay? (laughs) Expectation number one. Number two, if you're single, you need to hear all of these messages as well. So let me give you three reasons why this is true. 80% of you will be married at some point in your life. You need to be paying attention to this stuff now so that if and when that day comes, you're even more prepared on what it looks like to have a godly Christian marriage. Also, married folks need your help. Look, even if you never get married, you are a necessary and invaluable part of this body of believers. A lot of times we put the onus on married folks, like, hey, married folks, uh, you really need to like, have your stuff together so you can minister to the singles. And to that I say, true. But that does not mean that singles don't have just as much of a responsibility to understand what married people are going through so that you can minister to us. You don't get off scot-free. We need you just as much as you need us. So understanding the intricacies and difficulties, complexities of what Christian marriage is actually all about is really important for you to know as well because we need your help. Lastly, the things that make for a great spouse also make for a great friend. And so if you're single, God still has things that he needs you to learn because marriage relationships is just one form of relationships that God expects for us to have together. Thirdly, I want to say something to those of you that are gay. If you're here and you're gay, I want you to know that you are welcome and you are loved. A series revolving around the biblical understanding of marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman might feel incredibly painful to talk about at times. God knows this and God is with you right now, right here. The body of Christ is your family too. And the truth is, is we may actually need you even more than you need us. This is a a truth, whether you're gay or straight, single or married, all of us have broken sexuality. And the ability to express our sexuality or not does not define our value or purpose in this life. Hear that, know that. Jesus never expressed his sexuality. Neither did John the Baptist or Mother Teresa or so many others throughout the history of the world. They did, however, experience everything that God desired for them and found the good news of the kingdom worth even that sacrifice. And I hope you all will as well. Number four, 
expectations. If your marriage is in shambles, six weeks will not fix it. However, it can start a process. It can reignite hope in something that you feel has long been dead. It actually has the ability to make the good news of Jesus Christ more real than you ever thought possible because Jesus takes dead things and brings them back to life. It's what he specializes in. And so you need to hear that. The other thing is, is you can't fix your marriage alone. Nobody can. That's why we need each other. That's why we have community here at TLC. We believe lone wolves die. Lone wolf marriages do as well. We need other people in our lives that can help us speak truth to us, that can hold us accountable, that can have faith in our marriage even when maybe we don't. We also have great counselors here at TLC. We've got some folks that actually have office space in the back of our building that do counseling. Uh, we're actually going to be starting to partner with Winning at Home, an organization that's a counseling, Christian counseling practice in Zealand that's going to start a Grand Rapids site right here out of our building as well. Uh, I am a, a product of good marriage counseling. Uh, marriage counseling is for everybody, whether your marriage is strong and healthy or feels like it's falling apart. Uh, marriage counseling is powerful and beneficial. We can't do this alone. Now, let me set three ground rules, okay? Number one, we can't cover it all, all right? I can't talk about everything that the Bible speaks on when it comes to marriage. I can't give you every healthy psychological understanding of how we engage with one another. I don't have the time or the ability. Uh, here's the, the thing, though. An old adage that says uh, a pastor uh, is not supposed to fill your cup. They're supposed to empty theirs, okay? That's my desire and what I'm going to attempt to do. I can't give you everything. I can't fill your cup. I'm just going to simply try to empty mine. Second thing is we're going to give each other grace. All right? I have been really wrestling with this a lot the last couple weeks, getting ready for this message, uh, messages that are coming up. I've spent more time on this message than I have on any other message I've ever given. Um, and, I, and I still don't love it, <laughs> truth be told. I'm probably going to say some things that will possibly inadvertently offend you or maybe I say something and, and it, it has an inference that I don't intend. Would you please try to hear my heart? Offer grace and I will offer it to you. I care, the reason I spend so much time, I care so deeply about this. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to say anything that would dishonor God's word. That would be uh, hurtful to anyone. And so I'm just asking for your grace. Uh, I'll give it to you. You can give it to me. The third thing is we will be okay with messy. All right? We're all selfish. Okay? We're all people who are imperfect and on a journey. And that means that our marriages are messy. Our relationships are messy. We don't do it perfectly. And we're going to be okay with a little bit of mess because when we dive into mess, that's when God begins to do beautiful and amazing and powerful things, things that we couldn't even imagine can happen. Now, I'd like to describe a few reasons uh, why marriage is so difficult and why I actually think it's getting more difficult in our day and age. Uh, did you hear the reason why I wanted to get married? Uh, there was a common theme that ran through that description. I... <laughs> right? What I wanted, what I expected. Uh, I knew that I was selfish before I got married. 
I had no idea how selfish I was until I got married. And, and uh, if you think you figured it out then, just wait and have kids, and you'll even realize it's worse than you ever thought possible. Uh, I was incredibly selfish when I entered into my marriage. I thought that it was kind of about me. I thought that it was going to give me certain things. Uh, Brenda would say, uh, in many ways, the same thing. Uh, in fact, Brenda actually brought into our marriage, because all of us bring things into the marriage, right? Uh, we all bring in unmet needs, uh, ways that we expect our spouse uh, to, to care for us, uh, ways and expectations that we put on them that only God alone can fulfill. Uh, my wife, actually, she, she brought something into our marriage called McGuire's disease. I don't know if any of you guys uh, have ever heard of McGuire's disease before. Um, this is a sh- really short video that will explain McGuire's disease uh, to you. friends is McGuire's disease, okay? (laughs) McGuire's disease is when you think that your spouse is going to complete you. McGuire's disease is when you think your spouse is going to fulfill all of your needs. No, she does not complete him because she can't. And your spouse does not complete you because they can't. The only person that can do that is God himself. When we try to turn a human into God, it will never go well for us. Uh, Tim Keller says this, he says, Some people in our culture want too much out of a marriage partner. They're looking for someone who will accept them as they are, complement their abilities, and fulfill their sexual and emotional desires. A marriage that is based not on self-denial, but rather on self-fulfillment, will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Simply put, he says, people today are asking far too much in a marriage partner. Nobody's able to do that. Stanley Hauerwas is an ethics professor at Duke Divinity School. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage is primarily an institution of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. However, this assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. The truth that we always marry the wrong person. Hear that again. Stanley Hauerwas says, every single person marries the wrong person. He says, we never know whom we marry, we just think we do. And even if at first we marry the right person, just give it a little while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Mm. So what are we supposed to do about this? I think a lot of us actually walk into marriage or almost any relationship and we kind of know that McGuire's disease is not real, right? We, we kind of know that nobody can actually complete me. At least we might say it with our mouth, but deep down in in our hearts, in the recesses of our mind, we're all secretly hoping that it may not be true for everybody else, but for me, my spouse is going to do that, right? 
We might know that we should say that that's not true, but deep down we're still hoping that, well, it's going to be true for me. So what are we supposed to do when that reality comes crashing down? And the person that you thought was going to make you whole and was going to fulfill all of your needs all of a sudden becomes one of the ugliest people to you. Maybe not physically, but all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I like this person. They're not giving me what I need. What are we supposed to do? Well, I'd like us to flip open our Bibles to Ephesians 5. This is probably one of the most misunderstood. Even, I would say, over the generations since it's been written, often misused passages of Scripture in the Bible. And it's important that we get a little context as we go into it. If you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand. We've got folks that would love to give you one. You can follow along with us. Uh, this whole kind of section in this letter to Ephesians that Paul writes, he had this kind of idea that we're about to look at in 5, the beginning of the idea kind of starts in chapter 4. Okay, uh, Paul is uh, saying that he wants to urge us to live a life worthy of the calling. And he gives all kinds of different ways that that's going to happen. Stuff that we often connect with great marriage advice, like don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Okay? Uh, use your words to build others up. All that's in the beginning of this. Now, he's not writing this to married couples specifically. He's writing it to the entire church. But this is the context with which Paul is writing. He's talking about how we live as Christians in a world that doesn't hold our values. And that brings us to Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. That leads to debauchery. That leads to you acting like a fool. He's like, don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is actually the key marker of this section. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I will admit that is a word that if you grew up going to church, you've heard a lot, and you probably don't exactly know what it means. And if you didn't grow up going to church, that sounds like some Christianese, right? Like, what in the world are they filled with the Spirit? Like, what does that even mean? Well, uh, there's a guy, his name is Klein Snodgrass. That's a great name if you're going to be a biblical scholar. I'm just saying, <laughs> Klein Snodgrass. And uh, he actually says this about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. He says, to ask, uh, to ask us to be filled with the Spirit does not point to repeated charismatic experiences, as some claim. He says it is to ask us to focus our attention on Christ and his presence in us, to open ourselves up to the continual transforming work of the Spirit so that the presence of Christ empowers and shapes our lives. The Spirit is to be the dominating influence for all Christians. When I talk about falling in love with Jesus, right, so that we can be filled up with Jesus, so that we spill Jesus on everybody that we come in contact with, that's what I'm talking about. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We want to be so focused on who God is and what he's about and how he impacts our life that we open up ourselves to his filling, his indwelling, that he can begin to shape us and mold us more and more to act like Jesus being filled with the Spirit. Now, uh, Paul is going to give three examples of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's actually kind of four, but I combined two of them. He talks about it in, in uh, verse 17, uh, excuse me, in verse um, 18 and 19 and 20. 
He says, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord. So the first way that we show that we're filled with the Spirit is we sing to each other. <laughs> it sounds a little, like, I don't know that I would have chose that one, okay? All right, I'm certainly glad he didn't say we dance with each other. Because like I, like, I can barely sing, but I really can't dance. What does it mean to sing songs to one another? It means exactly what we just did a minute ago. If you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit, do, do you sing songs to one another? Look, when we're saying some of those lyrics, we walk in here and we say them not because we're experiencing them, but because we know that they're true. And so when we sing them, sometimes you're actually singing those words over somebody else's life who's sitting here and they're saying, yo, I don't feel like God is still in control. I don't feel like everything is okay. I don't feel the victory. And so I come into this place and I sing these songs to remind myself that sometimes God's word is true even when I'm not experiencing it in the moment. And we also sing these same songs as we just did a minute ago to God because we are reminded that God is worthy of our praise. And even when we can't feel it, God is still working. Even when we can't see it, God is still working. The second thing is we give thanks. We live with a spirit of gratitude. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord and always, or excuse me, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know if you're filled with the Spirit? Do you have a, a sense of gratitude? Do you live life with gratitude? Like, yo, I can't believe it. Look what God's doing in my life. Yeah, not everything's perfect, but man, how gracious has God been to me? And then there's a third thing. Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submission to our modern ears feels rather disgusting, doesn't it? That is just not a word we use a whole lot, right? We don't generally like the word submit. And yet it is a hallmark of being filled with the Spirit, a hallmark of the Christian life. You cannot be filled with the Spirit without submitting first to God and then to others. So what is submission biblically? Snodgrass also says this. What Paul has in mind is that Christians reject self-centeredness and work for the good of others. Submission is nothing more than a decision about the relative worth of others. Our society emphasizes equality but mutual submission is a much stronger idea. With equality, you still have a battle of rights. Equality can exist without love, but it cannot create Christian community. With mutual submission, we give up rights and uh, we give up rights and support each other. This is a definition of submission. We give up rights to support each other. Mutual submission is love in action. Understand the biblical understanding of submission. It brings equal valuing and is the power by which a Christian community establishes itself. Mutual submission becomes the context for what is to follow in verses 22 through 33. Read with me. Start in 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands. In the NIV, it actually puts in wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. In the Greek, that's not actually there. It's implied by the verse in front of it. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The profound mystery is the one flesh union between Christ and the church. Verse 33, this is his summary statement. However, each one of you, husbands, also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. When we first read this, it feels pretty shocking to our ears, right? It had the exact same effect on first century Christians living in Ephesus, but for almost the exact opposite reason. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of background of what it was like for women in first century Rome, okay? Um, When you read about women and attitudes that were prevalent and how women were treated, uh, it paints an unbelievably awful picture. Uh, One writer at this time in Rome said, uh, women were the worst plague Zeus ever made. Uh, Another writer said this, and this is a quote, uh, the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. Do you feel so affirmed, women? I mean, that, that was the prevailing understanding of a woman's worth, of her value. Her role in society. Uh, When the Christian household codes were written, and this is one of the Christian household codes, uh, it was not uncommon for uh, ancient Rome had these, uh, even Judaism had these, how you were supposed to act within the household. And so they were always written to women and to children and to slaves or bondservants. And that's where the instruction was given. Christianity was unique in that it was the only one that actually not only wrote to the weaker person who had less power, but also wrote to the stronger person who had more power. So there wasn't just simply household cold written to women of what their role was. Christians also had it written to the husbands. It was shocking in that day and age that you would say something to husbands as well. You see, we hear the word submit in our day and age, and it sounds like, oh, grow, who, like how could they ever think, right? Part of it is because we put a, a little bit of a different understanding of submission on than what the Bible does, and, and part of it is because we're just in a different place. In Paul's time, when he writes this, they're shocked as well. When he says wives should submit to their husbands, everybody's like, well, yeah, duh, And then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Excuse me? And honestly, it was thought of as scandalous, as subversive. 
as if Christianity was actually tearing apart the fibers of the society. Uh, Some of the things that the New Testament wrote, Paul himself, and that would have even been known at the time when he writes Ephesians, Galatians was written earlier. In Galatians, he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ. That kind of mutual equality in Christ was unheard of and shocking and scandalous. And so when Paul writes these household codes, he's trying to tell the Christians, look, we have a responsibility to live out our faith first and foremost in how we honor God by honoring one another. We're all equal in Christ. But we also have a responsibility to show the world what God wants to offer to them. And he's basically saying, look, we can't be so gross to the rest of society in the way that we interact with one another, that we turn them off. Now he's saying we don't shy away from what God says, what Jesus taught us, how we're supposed to live, the truth that we are equal and equal value, created in God's image, been given not just equal worth, but have been called to minister and grow one another more and more into the image of Christ. But he says, hey, we have to do this in a way that's also going to help us win over folks that are not a part of the Christian community. It matters how we live. And I would say that that's true of us today. Absolutely true of us today. Uh, There is one piece uh, within this for wives where he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The word there is the word kephale. That means head. Uh, When we hear it, we normally think that the the person that is the head is the one who is in charge, who is the authority, okay? Uh, There are other folks that have tried to say that, no, when they're using the word kefale, it means source, like the beginning of. Like Adam was first and then Eve came from. That's actually not what we think the scripture is actually doing here. In fact, we can't find any ancient instances in the New Testament or otherwise where we think that this is happening. There are other folks that would say it maybe has something to do uh, with an issue of leadership. Uh, There are others that are going to say that it has an issue of preeminence or prominence, like its husbands are the prominent because they're the ones that tended to be seen in this particular culture. Um, Here's what I can tell you. I have read hundreds of pages on this issue in the last week. It's not clear. I would love to tell you that it is. I would love to tell you that it's easy. Uh, It's not. Um, I do love what Snodgrass actually says about this. I found it to be the most helpful after reading literally uh, dozens of different articles on how this word gets used in ancient literature and how the New Testament writers use it, etc., etc. This is what he says. Ephesians 5.23 does not focus on authority within this context, but on the self-giving love of both Christ and the husband. Head, in this context suggests responsibility for. The husband has a leadership role, though not in order to boss his wife or use his position as privilege. Just as Jesus redefined greatness as being a servant, Paul redefines being head as having responsibility to love, to give oneself, and to nurture. A a priority is placed on the husband, but contrary to ancient society, it is for the benefit of the wife. The activity of both wife and husband is based in their relation to Christ and in his giving himself for the church. So, wives, let me tell you what this doesn't mean, okay? Wives, you are not a doormat to be walked on. 
Know that. You are not less than. You are not inferior in any way. You are co-equals in Christ. That is what Paul taught us in Galatians 3. If your husband asks you to do anything that goes against God's values or commands, you are to resist in love. That is a command that we have our first and foremost allegiance to Christ. If your husband is abusive, you have a matching responsibility to pursue justice. And you should not stay silent and you should pursue safety. Now let me say, wives, what this could mean. Your husband may want to do something that is not sinful or immoral, but you think is unwise or just plain stupid. If you submit, understanding the biblical definition of submission, right? Choosing to support him and that decision, even after sharing your thoughts, God will vindicate you. But that is his role, not yours. Wives, respect your husbands. Let me try to explain why I think he actually gives this as a summary statement for wives. Why he doesn't say, in summary, husbands love your wives, as he's already said a bunch of times. Why he doesn't say wives submit to your husbands. Why he actually says wives respect your husbands. I think the reason that he actually uses that as a summary statement is because it helps sum up the kind of submission that he's talking about. You see, the point when Paul is writing this is he's trying to say, first and foremost, we submit to one another in the church and in our relationships out of our reverence for Christ. And when it comes to the marriage relationship, submitting to one another, his first example of this is wives submitting to their husbands. Can a husband take advantage of that if a wife is willing to go along? Yeah, 100%. But he also says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, who died for the church. Could a wife take advantage of a husband who is doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. So when he gets down to saying, husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands, let me explain why I think respect is so important. Submission or giving up your rights to support your husband is a show of respect. Uh, we don't usually give respect unconditionally in our day and age. Right? Respect is earned. That's not what God is asking of women. Quite honestly, it's not what he's asking of men either. When he talks about respect, he's saying that this is one of the most powerful things that a man can possibly hear. And I promise you it absolutely is. When my wife comes to me and says, I trust you, I believe in you, I'm with you, I am for you, second only to the power of risen Christ, that power is in my life. When Brenda comes to me and says, babe, I'm, I'm with you, I got you, I believe in you, we can do this. Look, I'm telling you, ladies, uh, men, we might portray a sense of confidence that we got it all together, that we know what we're doing. We might portray a, a sense of strength, but I promise you, we are doubting ourselves all the time. God, am I, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Am I doing it the right way? God, am I actually following you and loving you and, and honoring you, God? Am I loving my wife the way that I'm supposed to? God, am I actually supposed to be doing this or doing that? And we're always second-guessing ourselves. When my wife comes behind me and says, babe, I believe in you. I got you. We are in this. Let's go. I can do, we can do this, babe. I like, I'm like, whoa, yeah, like, yeah, we can. 
I might have been doubting myself two seconds earlier. Now I'm like, oh, I am so ready. Let's, we got this, babe, right? Because of what? She, that is respect. That's how respect looks to a man. To say, I believe in you. I'm so proud of you. I trust you. Uh, let me show you one way that Brenda did this. And, and let me just tell you something. She's not here this morning. Uh, she's going to be here next week. We're actually going to teach together. Brenda would tell you she is not um, an easy submitter, okay? Especially when we were first married. Um, she's very independent. She's strong-willed. Uh, she is the girl who literally, when she was 13, didn't like the carpet that her parents had in their house because it was old. And, and, and so when they left one afternoon, she ripped it out without telling anybody. They showed up. And her mom wept because she had ripped the carpet out of their house, okay? Uh, that's my wife, okay? <laughs> she doesn't ask for permission, all right? She would probably tell you she doesn't even like to ask for forgiveness. She's just going to do what she's going to do. So uh, I had some friends who were telling me that, um, hey, uh, you know, it might be a good idea. They, they were investing in a couple of rental properties at the time. Like, hey, that might be a good thing for you. And it ad- added revenue stream, you know, kind of diversified. And I was like, yeah, that's not a bad idea, you know? I'm a guy who always sees the glass half full. I see the possibility in things, right? Brenda's like, I see the work, all right? So I was like, hey, babe, what? maybe we should like buy another house. We were living in Heritage Hill at the time. There was this house that was just outside of the hill. It was literally up on a hill, overlooks this park. It was gorgeous, all right? Beautiful, 100 and some year old home. Had these, it was all white, so it looked like the White House because it had these huge pillars. Had this like second story kind of big old porch off the front with more pillars and a, and a third story. And, and it was this massive house. I mean, I don't even know how big. It was like seven, 8,000 square feet. I think it had like eight uh, different apartments in it at the time. And I'm like, babe, we, we, maybe we should buy that. And like, we can rent it out. It'd be like this, you know, revenue street. And so I started talking to the guy who owned it. Uh, he owned another house on our street, and I'm talking, I'm like, hey, would you ever think about selling it? He'd owned him for a while. He was getting a little older, not sure he wanted. And so we started having this conversation. Brenda was like, are you out of your mind? Like, heck no, we shouldn't do that. That's, that's, that's a stupid idea. Do you know how much work it would take? It's a 100-year-old house. We already have so much work with our old 100-year-old house. There's going to be so many things. And I was, like, starting to, like, get frustrated. I was like, well, no, it's going to be awesome. Like, it'd be great. Like, we can do this. We can use it for ministry. Blah, blah. She was, like, fighting with me on it. I even had another conversation with the guy. We started talking numbers. She came finally to me and she said, you know what, T? I think it's not a good idea. I think it's an unwise idea. But I'm going to trust you to make a good decision for us. If this is really what you sense God is saying we're supposed to do, and it's wise, then I'm with you. Uh, I didn't know what to say because that was like not something I was expecting to hear. And yet, um, all of a sudden, I started looking at that place with completely different eyes. Now, it wasn't just about me uh, winning. All of a sudden, now, my wife was saying, I'm going to trust you to make the decision that you think is actually wise and good. And then I started looking at real numbers of what it would actually be and what it would actually cost and what it would actually take to do it and what the upkeep would actually be like. And within about a week, I went from, like, I was so wanting to do this to, yeah, no, we ain't never doing that. Because of the way that Brenda had entrusted, I felt respected in that moment in a way that I hadn't probably ever before. And because of that, it made me want to love her so much better where I wasn't thinking about myself, I was thinking about her. This is why it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ 
loves the church. Uh, this is one of those things that it sounds so chivalrous and manly, right? Like, oh, I would die for you, baby. Like, I'll step in front of a train. But the problem is the way that God is asking you to lead is not to lead in getting your way. The way that God is asking you to lead is to lead in sacrifice. You have to be the first one to die. Husbands, that's what this means. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He died. He gave up everything. He left everything in heaven to come down for us. Husbands, you're supposed to die for your wife, but not just physically die. You need to die to your dreams, your desires, your hobbies, when those things are not in your wife's best interest. I'm terrible at this. I'm going to just be like real with you. I'm not good at this. I'm better than I was 20 years ago, but I've got a long way to go. But I know when I love my wife that way, when, I, when I'm doing everything, making every decision because it's what is in her best interest, not in mine, oh my goodness, that kind of mutual self-giving love, like it just comes back. She can't help but respect that man. She wants to. Submitting, that, that, that's not even an issue. You, you'd be foolish not to. Because at that point you're saying, everything you're going to do is actually for me. And in that sense, this biblical understanding of submission is almost a selfish thing. But that's how it's supposed to work. Now, we all know that we live in the real world though, right? Women don't respect their husbands the way that they ought to. And men absolutely do not love their wives the way Christ loved the church. Paul calls us to a high, beautiful, amazing standard. And what he's saying is that you got to be all in. Newlyweds, you have to be all in. Your spouse cannot complete you. Only God can do that. And when God calls you into marriage, he's calling you to give all of yourself because that's what God did. You see, marriage is supposed to reflect what God looks like. Jesus, better than any of us ever could, reflects what God looks like when he came to earth. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in John 13, Jesus shows exactly how this is supposed to play itself out in real life. Jesus takes his disciples, whom he has loved and loved to the end, and he gathers them for one final meal. And as he does, he takes off his outer coat and he pours a basin of water and he wraps a towel around his waist and he goes to each one of them and begins to wash their feet. That is the thing that the lowest person in the household was supposed to do. In fact, the disciples are shocked by this. In fact, Peter gets mad at Jesus. is like, don't even, don't even attempt to do this. And when Jesus is done, Jesus says, do you see what I've done for you? I've set an example. The greatest among you will be the least, the one who serves. Friends, that's what marriage is supposed to be. God is self-giving, sacrificial giving love. You want to know why marriage is so hard? Because marriage is not about compromise. Marriage is about sacrifice. You want to have a great marriage? You have to build it not on compromise, but on sacrifice. I'm not saying you never compromise in a marriage. Of course we do. But the best marriages are built on sacrifice. That's what he calls us to. I give all of myself to you. 
I lay down my rights for you because I want to help you know, love, and follow Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we said that um, the eye always drains to the heart. Remember that? The eye always, what you look at is what you love, and what you love is what you look at. When we focus on something, the eye always drains into our heart, and it becomes our treasure. And wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is. It matters what we look at. The esteemed theologian Justinius Bieber once said, But the grass ain't always greener on the other side. It's green where you water it. (laughs) What are you watering? Newlyweds, what are you watering? I want to end with a very small piece of advice for newlyweds. But what I think you're going to find whether you've been married a short time, a long time, or even whether you're single, you're going to find that there are principles that relate to all of us. But for newlyweds, I want to give you one really, really practical advice. It's called the 3D rule, okay? The 3D rule. It helps us begin to focus our eyes on our spouse. Number one, dialogue daily. Dialogue daily. Every day. Take five minutes. It doesn't have to be long. Five, ten minutes and talk. Share what happened during the day. Some frustrations, some things that you're dreaming about, right? Talk about your hopes. Talk about the, the things that are, that are driving you mad at work or just whatever's going on. Dialogue daily because if you want to have a relationship with somebody, the same thing is true of our time with God, you got to spend time with them on a consistent basis, on a regular basis. So maybe it's before you go to bed. Maybe it's when you... First, get home from work, whatever it is, but dialogue daily. Number two, date weekly. Date weekly. Uh, This is awesome and easy when you're newlyweds and you don't have any kids, right? You date like daily. In fact, you like date multiple times daily sometimes, right? When you have kids, though, can I get an amen? Uh Uh-huh. It's hard. So you know what? Put it into practice now. Put it into practice now and make sure that it stays a priority for you throughout your married life. Look, if you want to focus on your spouse, knowing that what you focus on always drains into your heart, then you need to dialogue daily and you need to date weekly. We do this as Christians. That's why we have like quiet time with God every day where we're trying to spend time reading his word, praying, talking to him. And we also date God weekly when we come to church. All right, that's what this is. This is like a time that we set aside specifically to spend with God and with others, our family. And the third D is depart quarterly. This one I am not very good at. This one actually takes an investment of time and money. But friends, what is more important in your life than your marriage? If you won't invest in that, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know what else to tell me. I need to work on this. Dialogue daily, date weekly, depart quarterly. That means to get away. Get away for a night, a whole day where you don't have the kids or anybody else. Your family's not around, right? You're not hanging out with your friends. It's the two of you because you're working on building a relationship, right? The eye always drains to the heart.
I can't wait for next week. Um, there's some more stuff that, uh, that I'm excited to be able to share with you. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear from Brenda. Uh, quite honestly, she's, uh, seriously, she's a lot wiser on this stuff than I am. And God's been doing some really, really, really cool uh, things in her own life that I know she's excited to be able to share with you as well. Um, I love you. I love this church. Uh, I barely slept last night because I was so burdened about this message. Um, because I want to get it right. I really want to get it right. So let's work on this together. Let's encourage each other. All right? Um, I can't wait for what God has for us uh, in the weeks to come. God, thanks for your love for us. Uh, thanks for your word. Um, God, thank you um, that, God, in our culture, where some of these things feel uh, uh, difficult, uh, and in the culture this was written in, where some of these things felt difficult, um, God, you just wanted to tell us uh, what we needed to hear. God, help us live it out. Help us understand it appropriately. Uh, God, forgive us, especially us men who have often used your word to hold our female counterparts down. Oh, God, forgive us. God, let us love one another, submit mutually uh, to one another here in the church, that we would place others' needs above our own, to choose to lay down our rights for the building up of someone else. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for us. Thanks for being the model for us. We love you. We give you permission to continue to work in our lives. And God, right now, I pray for maybe some folks in here right now that their marriage is hanging by a thread. And maybe nobody else even knows right now, but they do. God, would you give them just a glimmer of hope, a reminder that you, you bring life to dead things, that you can still transform a heart. And God, let them not focus on the faults of their partner, let them focus on the things that they need to do to grow the marriage, to fight for the marriage, to pursue you with their whole heart and mind, even when it's hard. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the ways that you give us second chances, for your grace that is always greater than our sin, and for the day, uh, for the re reality that one day you're going to come back and make all things new. We can't wait. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.